Welcome back to another episode of the CT Turf Podcast. Today I'm excited to share a conversation I had with Frank Rossi. Our topic was the park grass experiment and how it does or does not relate to how we manage fine turf. I've admired Frank for a long time. Back when I was an assistant, his superintendent news column was appointment reading for me. Like many in the turf industry, I've had the chance to listen to Frank speak many times over the years, and as time has gone on, I'm honored to be able to call him a friend. During our conversation, Frank says Minnesota like a true Minnesotan, recalls a drawing I once shared in which I used our daughter Olive's crayons and supplies, and he shares his history with the park grass experiment. I hope you enjoy it. All right, I'm here with Frank Grassi, and um, we are going to talk today about the park grass experiment. Um, since I learned about it, it's absolutely one of my favorite um, turf grass management, I guess, experiments, but just subjects. And Frank, I know you know more about this experiment probably than anybody else in the turf grass world. So I'm going to just start to, by asking you to give the listeners a little bit of a background on the park grass experiment. I might also say that this is dangerous, giving you an open-ended question with a time limit because we may run out of time simply on this question. So go I'll ahead. I'll try. I'll, I'll try. To, I'll do the best I can to be brief. So great to <laughs> see you, and and always uh, great to chat. I always. Uh, treasure the time that we we get together to chat. Um, okay, so um, uh, it started really when I started my master's degree uh, in 1986 with Dick Scobley uh, at the University of Rhode Island. I had left uh, the Greenwich Country Club as the assistant superintendent, superintendent. The guy was on his way out. And I had realized that uh, being a golf course superintendent wasn't uh, in my career path, mostly because I couldn't keep my mouth shut uh, to, to, you know, deal with golfers. When I started to work with Dick, he put me on a project, uh, um, studying sweet vernal grass, anthoxanthum odoratum. Um, it was uh, a low maintenance grass that, uh, Scogli had found in cemeteries and Dick's, uh, was always in pursuit of low maintenance grasses. And so he would take me and many of his other graduate students to cemeteries and we'd walk around and pick up fescues and, old bent grasses, and invariably every place he went, he would find sweet vernal grass. He probably collected about 30 different types from, you know, Truro Bay in New Brunswick, all the way down uh, to the coast of Rhode Island. And uh, he said, here, you know, your master's degree is seeing the possibility of this grass uh, as a low maintenance species. So I did what every graduate student does when they start. I got into the literature and lo and behold, the literature led me to the park grass experiment because this grass is a grass that you find in almost every plot out there. There are very few plots in the in the uh, park grass experiment that's been going on since right around the Civil War um, that you don't find sweet vernal grass in. So um, that's where it started. And then I published my master's thesis. It took many years after the fact. It wasn't, you know, the greatest piece of scientific work. It was a master's work on mowing and fertilizing and weed control to see if it could make it as a turf grass. And I published it in 2001 in the International Turfgrass Society Research Journal. And that's where I cited the, the park grass experiment. And it really began to shape my philosophy about turf grass nutrition, even though I really never studied turf grass nutrition. My background is in, you know, turf grass selection and management for my master's. And then my PhD was in weed science. I did, uh, you know, drought stress effects on the uh, cr on crabgrass and how phenoxaprop or reclaim worked on it. So 
you know, I sort of learned my early sort of nutritional concepts from the park grass experiment, which back in 1985, I was like, well, what are we using all these fertilizers for? If we want bent grass. It looks like all you got to do is put ammonium sulfate on. And I would say it wasn't until Micah came that it actually resurfaced uh, in, into my career when we began to study potassium and soil testing. Mm -hmm. And and that's and so that's how I became aware of it is through Micah. And you and Micah wrote the article together in the green section record, I believe in 2011, which if I'm not mistaken, is the titled uh, The Park Grass Experiment and the Fight Against Dogma. Is that correct? Uh, which I think Micah is a fascinating and, title. Micah and I would have, right. listen, when we embarked upon questioning potassium use in the turf grass industry, it didn't make us popular. Uh, I got nasty letters from academic colleagues uh, that were wondering why we were questioning such a thing. Uh, one of them was at the University of Nebraska, who's been long retired now. Uh, Micah and I got a, a very uh, non-complimentary response uh, from that academic at the time. Um, and I would go speak about Micah's work in other places and, uh, you know, going to Canada and telling them potassium actually made snow mold worse was quite perplexing. Um, so for us, it became a fight constantly against what we felt was just dogmatic belief that potassium had use. I'm sure you met people that to this day probably say they throw a bag of potassium sulfate in every every tank that goes out to this day. Now, I'm pleased to see the GCSA nutrient reports show that potassium use is significantly down. And, and really the only place it stuck around, I think, is down south because even some of those turf grass managers continue to believe they have to be, you know, one to two, one to five, even though, you know, longtime turf nutrition specialists like Johnny Cesar, who I did my graduate work with at Rhode Island, have said it's one to one or one to 0.5 like it is everywhere else. So uh, it wasn't until Murph came along with his work with POA that began to, re you know, really demonstrate not dogma, but actually scientific evidence that said you probably should have your soils in this certain part per million range if you've got annual bluegrass to prevent winter damage, uh, reduce anthracnose. But until we did our work, hardly anybody had studied this stuff. And it really felt like everybody was saying it, and it was dogma, not science. Mm -hmm. And so I suppose I, you've probably answered my next question or it's probably somewhere along those lines, the answer to it, which is, you know, so why hasn't this gotten more traction in the turf industry? Because when I look at it and I have for all of my career wanted to grow bent grass and wanted to manage bent grass or promote more bent grass, keep the bent grass that we have, keep POA from being part of our surfaces, any meaningful part of our surfaces. And so to me, I think about this study and I immediately think, okay, this is this is the simplest thing I could possibly do to, to do exactly what I want as a turf manager. But yet the industry doesn't seem to either A, know about it or B, um, think that that's a possibility. So is it is it just this fight against dogma or is it, I mean, I think there's other things, but, uh, uh, you know, what's the answer there? Well, I mean, um, I guess I would start by saying that, uh, uh, um, how to answer this question. And maybe, maybe, um, it's, it's, 
<laughs> people get very set in their ways. They have a belief system that science sometimes uh, can't penetrate. And the park grass experiment needs qualification. It's not a turf grass experiment. It's a pasture mm -hmm. experiment, right? It's only cut four times a year. Um, and many people say, well, you know, that's not turf. I grow bent grass at an eighth of an inch or less, and I don't see how this relates. So I think there were always people who were willing to dismiss it because it needs some qualifications. Um, it's much more of an ecological approach. And I would say, the pro I, you know, not to get too far ahead, but the significance of it and many other things that I've done in my career is the longevity of it, right, Chris? I mean, when you look at a study where there's 170 years worth of data, or, you know, I've done work with the New York State Parks, we've got 10 years worth of data on soil testing. Before that, I had eight years at the Green Course where we did nothing but put nitrogen and iron on it. And so to me, I've never, I mean, it's salespeople are really good. They do soil testing for superintendents. They interpret those soil tests in ways that virtually make it impossible to reach the potassium levels that are set in traditional either BCSR or sufficiency level interpretations. And they probably stay on it because potassium's cheap, uh, phosphorus is cheap, a lot of these nutrients are inexpensive, they look out and it has insurance, and they say, you know, it's not causing any problems. Now, Micah has just recently tweeted the dandelion issue, which, um, you know, the labs in Minnesota have gone and proven furthermore that adding potassium and calcium on a routine basis will likely lead to more dandelions. Um, I, I Listen, I've been at this a really long time. If I can figure out why we can't get people to do things that make sense and why they we can't get them to stop doing things that don't make sense, uh, I probably wouldn't be having this conversation. I'd be flying a private jet back to Italy where I was for the last couple of weeks. So, you know, when I when when we say dogma, you know, I say it in almost a way that would challenge people's religion. Uh, you know, people have almost religious beliefs about their nutrition. And a lot of people, you know, especially I can tell you this, this is a much more uh, a much more intense phenomenon down south. I mean, down south, they want custom fertilization and dialing all these things and micronutrients. And I think we've successfully compensated, you know, complicated something that I think I've said publicly before distracts us from the real challenges we should be addressing on golf courses, which is not, you know, macro and micronutrient uh, fertilization. Yeah. I mean, I totally agree. And, and I guess maybe I can't get out of my own mind when I, when I make this statement, but to me, if I'm a superintendent and I'm going to build a brand new green and I'm going to put bent grass on it. And I think about all of the, what seemed to be, and I was, I was one of them at one time who had much more complicated feelings about what was going to get rid of POA or promote bent grass or, um, you know, do that for me. But now I think about it much more simply. And I think, I think it's mostly a nutrient, a soil nutrient problem and so as a superintendent, I now think if I have a brand new green or a brand new um, surface that I'm going to plant with bent grass, there's, a, there's really only one thing I need to do to keep that as bent grass. Um, and it's, and I think, well, this is incredibly simple. Why would everyone not do this? Again, that's easy for me to say. I, I think about that. I have thought about it that way for a long time, but it's astounding to me that we complicate some of these things 
in in such a way that just seems crazy. Well, I was, I mean, for me, much like I'm sure for you, um, I was raised and philosophically to think about things in a low input, low maintenance perspective. Doc Scogley was a low maintenance guy and he really shaped, helped me shape a lot of my thinking. I mean, he was trying to find grasses that could get, that could get by, that could get by with less. I mean, Dick used to say all the time that, you know, we, we ruined velvet bent grass because we wanted to give it so much nitrogen. It would, would become thatchy. Now velvet bent grass, you know, still has never really caught on. I'd also say I was influenced by a guy, uh, my Tom Cook out in Oregon State. Tom was really the definitive annual bluegrass guy. I mean, when you go out there, it doesn't really make sense to try to grow bent grass because annual bluegrass wants to grow. And I would talk to Tom, who I know was also a mentor to uh, Micah. Uh, Tom and I became friends even to this day. I, I still think of Tom as a, as a very close colleague and a mentor, even though we didn't spend a lot of time together. Um, you know, Tom would say, listen, if you want to grow annual bluegrass, you better have, you know, balanced NPK, calcium, sulfur. He would show really clearly. And he worked with Roy Goss, a lot of the legends out there um, that that uh, Stan Braun, um, that that were legends in growing annual bluegrass. And he would say very clearly, if you want to grow poa, do this. If you want to grow bent grass somewhere else, do that. But so much of, you know, annual bluegrass management is just letting the surface get disturbed constantly, keeping it wet, keeping it fertile. And you get regular recruitment of these annual bluegrass plants. Now, I think to your point, growing good bentgrass is really more than nutrition. You, you've got to be stingy with the water. These are plants that actually, I mean, Scogley used to tell me these were plants that didn't need as much fertilizer. Again, he would take me to these cemeteries and he would say, look at this. I think Micah calls it turf tourism now. <laughs> I was doing this in the 80s, walking around cemeteries. And now I'm walking around cemeteries at the end of my career, you know, trying to figure out how to manage them in a more sustainable way. It's sort of ironic how careers come around. Now, here's the thing, Chris. I mean, you know what I know. This is a um, this is a very economically uh, vital industry. Uh, golf is, you know, is booming again with the pandemic. Golf course superintendents are making more money than they ever have. And we rely on these same companies that sell us these things to fund our education, to support research, uh, to fund our golf events. Um, and they make money by us buying things. Um, I, my podcast is sponsored by a nutrition company, you know, plant food, which I'm very fond of because when I worked with them, they really embraced the simple approach. They're like, yeah, you can do it this way and you can do it that way. I've always felt like you felt philosophically that why, why not take the easy path? And when Micah worked with me and we were growing bent grass on this pH, you know, the green we he did his PhD on was a pH of 7.8. I mean, it didn't hold a lot of potassium and we withheld potassium, I think, when he was here for five years and then we went another five years. And the only difference we could see, which is what Doug sold at, is continuing to see in Wisconsin that you get more snow mold if you keep adding uh, potassium. I can't understand uh, for me why we've decided to complicate it when there's so many other things on golf courses that are really complicated, like pathogen management. Uh, insect management, soil physical property management. Um, 
I often wondered if we did it just to justify all the economics that have come our way, right? All the money yeah. that has come our way. If it's that simple, why are we making so much money? It does seem to me that there's that's there's some part of it that is a um I don't know how you would refer to it, but it's 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 like this this would it be a self-fulfilling prophecy? Is that the right thing where you you you're doing it? You've you've now you've convinced people that you need the money to do a little bit more. You get the money. All right, well, we have to make this money. We have to spend the money. So let's do this and then let's do that. Oh, we need a little bit more. Let's do that. And pretty soon you you have all these things that are being done and and maybe, you know, somewhere if if we stopped and we looked in the rearview mirror, we look back and we go, boy, I, I don't know how far have we are we away from what was the real intent um, when we started this. And and maybe through generations or some, you know, portions of generations, we've superintendents and turf managers have have forgotten some of those things because they they grew up with X amount and they wanted X amount more. And and they forgot this the what really simply did the job um you know in in the past or what maybe could do the job now i think i think that's the other thing frank and you'll probably agree with this is we think well and just what you said there's there's so many qualifying things about the park grass experiment and people would say well there's there's these qualifying things about all this you can't do it this simple because there's just too much traffic there's too much play there's too much expectation and you know i would i would counter that and say well we you know that I'm I am doing it simple, and we are meeting those expectations. So, well, let me ask you a question. If you looked at your budget, which I'm sure is pretty healthy at Hazeltine, mm -hmm. what would you say the fertilizers you buy for your surfaces? What percentage of your budget do they make up? Um, I'm assuming it's fairly can, low. It's it is budget. fairly low. I mean, I can I can tell you this, and I'm I'm happy to 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 just say the number. Um, um, all of our chemicals, and that includes wetting agents, pesticides, insecticides, everything, uh, wetting agent, PGRs, fertilizer, all of it, $100,000. Um, uh, and what percentage of that do you think are just plant nutrition? I, um, I, again, I'm betting it's single digits in your case. It's, it percentage. is single digits. Yeah. So it's, first it's off, under, yeah. So first off, back to your earlier question, why do we keep doing it? Doesn't cost mm -hmm. us anything, right? Does it, it, it's the costs are immaterial right? Yep. The immaterial. We've never demonstrated that we're hurting grass really by adding these nutrients. I, I might argue that probably are setting us back a little bit. So yeah. first off, as you said, um, well, first, it's not a lot of money. Second, I don't know superintendents who are likely to not spend the money that they get. Yep. What I often wonder is, hey, let's say it's 10 grand that you're spending on nutrition, or maybe in your case, it might be 25 grand because you got a lot of surface out there to yep to fertilize. Um, let's say it's that. And they say, well, I don't want to give that money back. Well, don't give the money back. Get a, a part-time guy. Yeah. Get, get another right. employee. Reallocate that money. I, you, I, I'm not arguing we should necessarily tell our golfers we can do less. You know, we can do what we're doing with less. You know, if at a place like yours where, you know, a lot, I mean, it's the labor uh, it, where you put it towards detail, yeah, right. Exactly. A, a lot of you guys take that extra labor and put it towards the details that golfers will really appreciate. And I would say, you know, if, if you're listening to this and like, oh, these guys are crazy. I mean, I'm not going to not spend this money. Don't take the money and put it into something that actually is going to demonstrate some value. That's the first part. The second part is I still meet my academic colleagues 
uh, many of them who make nutritional recommendations who do not subscribe to the minimal level of sustainable nutrition, who do not subscribe to using less nutrients like this, and they are shaping the next generation of minds. I just hired a young man in my program to take over our state park agronomy work who came out of, uh, you know, my least favorite turf program in the country, which many people don't have to guess which one that is. And he never even, he heard that they bet that, you know, this nutritional professor mentioned it for 20 minutes in one lecture. Mm -hmm. So I think number one, we're not training the next generation of minds. And I think a lot, and therefore we also don't have superintendents who are using that strategy. Many of them will just let the fertilizer guy come take the soil samples, make the recommendations, buy the program, you know, and these purchases are made. They're not very much money. And so it goes on almost uh, in a mindless way. Jim Brosnan, I've talked with many times about herbicide programs in the South, right? Herbicides are the primary pesticide a lot of the Southern superintendents are using. And Jim would tell me, Frank, it's like ninth on the list of things that they're fussing about. It's like you put the pre's, you put the, you get your budget for the posts, you make your second pre and, and you're done. Um, I think nutrition gets that same short shrift when it comes to thoughtfulness. They're just, yep. I learned it this way. It doesn't cost me much money. This guy comes and handles it for me. What am I, what are these guys talking about? Why do I even got to think about this? And on the off chance you know, I get nutritional deficiencies of which, you know, some much smarter guys than me, like Doug and Micah and Bill, they can't even create deficiencies in many cases. I mean, Doug's been waiting forever to demonstrate a potassium deficiency. So I think there is a lot of inertia behind the system staying the same uh, as it does with, with many things. I mean, we're trying to get people to use digital tools, uh, to be more thoughtful about their pesticide applications and or the EIQ. And and they look at us like we got three heads. So, you know, I, I think, you know, the first one through the wall is usually pretty bloody. And, you know, I'm pretty bloody uh, after walking through these walls a few times. Um, and I'm really pleased to see young people like Micah and Doug, uh, new professors like Chase Straw, young guys like Gerald Henry, really embracing the sort of next generation of the things we're doing. Um, I don't expect a lot of people over the age of 45 or 50 to be doing much changing. Um, I'm hopeful that maybe the next generation will, but I'm also worried that we're not shaping those uh, minds in a progressive way. We're sort of you know, you go to the GCSA, you learn about nutrition, and they stand up there and say, phosphorus does this, and potassium mm-hmm. does that. And somehow there's this thought that soils aren't able to supply these things. Even sands aren't able to supply these things. Uh, and so we are where we are. Yeah. You know, it's interesting you bring up the the savings or the 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 amount of money. And, and I have heard that criticism come my way and people say, well, look, um, what, what is the point of me saving this money? Sort of alluding to what you just said. What's the point of me saving it? They've given it to me. I have fought tooth and nail for it. Um, why would I, why would I give it up or why would I save, look for ways to save $50,000 and just what you said. And I, I, and I can, can comment on this because I have done it here. That $50,000 is, is very valuable in, in other ways. I mean, people complain about the, 
the lack of employees and some of that is is wage you know wages need to be higher well you know when you start dividing up fifty thousand dollars amongst a number of employees to increase wages that goes a long way um you know and and here in minnesota that's a that's a couple seasonal employees so I think that sometimes it's easy to sneeze at 20 grand, 30 grand, 40 grand, but, but you start dividing that up in a meaningful way to, to make your team um, feel better about what they're making or make them happier. And it can go a long way. And, and well, that, we're wandering really, off here, but I will tell you, we are, but as the, as, as, as the superintendent profession continues to get log jam at the top, right. Mm -hmm. Guy, you know, guys like you aren't going anywhere. And I know you lost, you know, uh, Ryan Moore a few years ago after after the Ryder Cup. Um, but honestly, I think we have to confront the fact that that $20,000 might be better to just give to my senior assistant, call him an associate superintendent, him or her, and make them a career assistant. I, yeah. I think we're getting to the point where we need career assistants. People like I would have been happy to stay an assistant and just grow grass the rest of my career. Cause that's what I liked not talking to people yeah. and just being left alone to grow the grass. So to your point, that money that you might be spending on those extra bags of potassium sulfate or whatever it is, you're buying some program that's got 15 jugs. You got to put out all the time uh, is, is alarming. And I'm going to say one more thing about this and then we can get back to the park grass experiment. I wish we could adopt GPS sprayers more widely. I wish we could use them for variable rate applications. But if we put 13 things in the tank, we can't use it for variable rate applications. We're never going to be able to capitalize on the real power of these of this technology if we put 13 things in there. I think if we put nitrogen and iron or nitrogen in a growth regulator, we could go like your old olives crayon thing, you know, half <laughs> X, one X, two yeah. X, right? And just dial the sprayer in. But you can't do that if you got 13, you know, different things in there or eight different things in there. Right. So the complications of nutrition is limiting our ability to embrace really useful technology that's likely to make us more efficient in the future, both from a product perspective and from a labor perspective. Yep. And you know, it's funny we say this, you're like, well, we're way off subject here, but really we're not. And I think this is the natural progression of the discussion that we started with, which is this park grass experiment. And, and you know, and why don't we do it? But what are the trickle down impacts of if we if we are managing that way? And the trickle downs are all these things that people sort of and people in the industry and my colleagues sort of complain about is not enough money for employees, can't pay assistants enough money. You know, who would want to stay as a career assistant when, um, you know, the pay isn't there? Well, you know, here it is, just as you said, there's there might be $20,000 easily in a fertilizer budget that could raise the amount of money an assistant's being paid and boom, they're a career assistant at a, at a wage that's really livable. So I think, I think we're, we're appropriately off subject, but okay, to bring but it let back, me, let, okay. let me ask you a question. Let me yep. ask you a question. Yep. Um, you got those beautiful bent grass surfaces that, you know, I got to see firsthand at the Ryder cup all those years ago. And I think we all were amazed at how little you actually did, you know, to get what you needed to get out there. Um, when you, if you were talking to a colleague and they, you know, they were listening to this and they got sparked by it, say, well, you know, Chris, that actually kind of makes sense. What would you tell, I mean, I would say, listen, 
Don't go 18 greens or 18 holes crazy. Pick a part three. Pick a yeah. practice area. Stop doing something. Try yeah. something simple like this. See what happens when you remove these things from the equation. Yeah. I used to have this conversation with people when I would come out and say, stop air flying, stop pulling a core. What the hell are you doing? And they would say to me, you know, Frank, I, I, I did stop, but you know, I don't really want anybody to know, or Frank, I haven't used potassium in three years and I really don't want anybody to know. There's this idea among superintendents and you know them better than I do. Maybe they're afraid to go out on a limb, quote unquote, and on a limb on this thing, because if something does come up, there's this feeling, well, why didn't you do that? We give you enough money. What the hell are you skipping that for? Or what the mm -hmm. hell are you not doing that for? Do you think some of this is risk aversion that maybe if somebody found out and something bad happened, yeah. they would be questioned and maybe even terminated because they didn't do this sort of routine thing that everybody else is doing. I've thought about it with the, you know, the positions I've taken on core cultivation. I've thought about it with the positions I've taken on potassium. I've thought about it with the positions I've taken on reducing pesticide use, right? That's a, yeah. another thing where there's some risk involved. Yeah. What do you think? I mean, what do you tell guys if they want to put their foot in the water here and they think it's risky? Well, it's a good question. And I, I don't know that I've had that kind of conversation in that kind of way, but I, but I, here's what I would tell somebody. I would say, go, go in your, you, you got to have a nursery or you got to have a green that's not in play that people don't walk on and figure out how big that is and figure out how many gallons it takes to spray it. And when you spray either before, while you're waiting for the mowers to get ahead and you're waiting for the fill up 20 gallons of, of solution and put some, a little ammonium sulfate in there and go spray that green and be done with it. And then come back in and mix up the rest of your spray and, and go out and do it. And then don't spray that green or that nursery. And, and you just see what happens for a year. And, um, you know, if you get into the middle of the year and you don't like what you're seeing, um, you know, you can maybe change, change directions, but I don't think that's going to be the case. And now I think uh, this happened organically during the pandemic. When mm -hmm. we started shutting down in 2020 and guys didn't have the labor, they weren't sure they were able to work. They didn't have the staffs that they would normally have. And they didn't have golfers on the golf course, or then they would get golfers on the golf course. And they would say, you know, Frank, I didn't do these things for three months. And I didn't actually notice a difference. That's the first thing that comes to my mind. A lot of guys started to rethink their programs when they were forced or unable to do certain things. Now, another thing that happens is benign neglect, right? I think a lot yeah. of times we learn things from benign neglect. We purposely have neglected this area and look, it's got all that bent grass on it. It's got all this on it, you know, yep. or there's, there's no traffic. And we's like, wow, look at that bent grass coming on with no traffic. Right. So I think the question I would ask you that I get a lot is what do you do? Cause I can show you data that shows bent grass is clearly not as traffic tolerant as annual bluegrass. Mm -hmm. What do you say when people ask you, what do you do with bent grass when it starts to wear down? Don't you mm -hmm. think you need these other nutrients in there to keep things going? Or can you do it with just nitrogen? To, to me, I have found that it is, it is nitrogen. 
And I can see the difference between, like you said, and you mentioned, you know, years ago, that's a, that's a wonderful memory. I'm glad you remember that. Um, me coloring those, those things with olives, crayons and markers, our daughter, our daughter, Olive, who's a freshman now, she was much younger then, but, um, with the, this idea of here's a, here's a putting surface and this area needs X amount, you know, this is the baseline, this needs the least amount. And then this might need, you know, 50% more and a hundred percent more. And I have absolutely seen it that when we um, get to the point that, that that's all it takes, it's all it takes is the extra nitrogen. We have a, a hose end application that uh, method that we use with a, a five gallon carrier rate. Um, and we'll just put urea or ammonium sulfate in there. And when we start to get to a stressful point of the summer, um, we'll go out and we will just hit those areas and we'll double them up and they'll get double or sometimes they'll get triple what the other areas are getting. And that's, that has, to me, has been all that it takes, um, you know, and, and, and I'm not going to tell a person that there's, there's no POA plants in those areas, but what I can tell you is that after 10 years of being here, um, there's no meaningful amount. There's no amount that, it, you know, there's no, there's no, um, danger of takeover. Um, and that's all it is. It's been nitrogen. And I, I put a little potassium in, in the, I think it's three to one, or five to one, maybe even, and I don't remember my ratio right off the top of my head, but in the summer and that's it, yeah. you know, and, um, and that's it. That's all I do. So, you know, I, I think we're, we're counting down here now. we got about seven minutes left, Frank, but, but what, okay, let me, cause Micah and I have had this conversation, but I want to ask you, this is the, the very basic kind of getting back to the park grass. We're going to come back to the, to that, the basic idea of if I built a putting green, and I only ever as a USGA green sand base, so low nutrient holding capacity. Um, and I only ever put ammonium sulfate on the green. I seeded it with bent grass and it only ever got ammonium sulfate and only ever got water. And we, we don't need to get into cultural practices, but that was basically it. What do you think that green would look like? It probably, as Doug sold that would say, uh, tell you, would probably develop phosphorus deficient, uh, phosphorus deficiency quickly, mm -hmm. uh, depending on if, you know, but, but we're talking again, if you talk to Doug recently, he'd probably tell you in Wisconsin, it's a, you know, it's, it's a, it's a light switch. You get above seven mm -hmm. part per million and, and it's over. So I would say if you put on that phosphorus, um, that's probably what our data shows. If you were able to develop some organic matter and mm -hmm. uh plant and you had any kind of you know sort of uh once organic matter starts to develop and plant tissue starts to develop you'll find out quickly now what else you need i, I don't think if you could get the full 100 percent turf cover you would see much deficiency but here's i think a good place to for us to you know start to close up here if you see a deficiency and you test it you add it. Mm -hmm. I don't understand why we've thought that, you know, fertilization is, is like this sort of like this, right. You have to do it. It's sort of mm -hmm. ingrained. We should be supporting the soil, supplementing the soil. I always thought fertilization was a supplementary practice, not an obligatory practice mm -hmm. other than nitrogen, which we purposely keep in a limiting state. I think we're finding that there are much fewer limitations to these other nutrients than we've thought. So if you planted a new bent grass green, you'd probably some, see some phosphorus deficiency. I think during the summer months, a one to 0.25 nitrogen potassium ratio 
is a good way to go because potassium is going to have some involvement in, in water relations in the plant. And then you're done. Go do something else. <laughs> you know what I mean? If you want a greener, if you want a greener, spray iron, stain yeah. the damn thing with iron. Right. And you know, everybody thinks, oh, iron, iron. It's just a staining tool. All it yeah. does is stain it darker. And you know, People don't want to believe these things, but Wayne Cousseau and even Larry Leonard, who's I think is even my age, I mean, he showed this years ago. Iron is a staining tool. It's not mm -hmm. really a nutritional tool. Yep. It's something that just stains the plant, makes it look darker green. Nitrogen and iron, a little bit of potassium in the summer, and you're done. I, this this idea that things are locked up and oh, I gotta add that calcium. I, you know, once everybody starts talking like that, Chris, I start to like, I, I just start, you'll see it. I'll start scratching my head. I yeah. do all I can to not offend them and upset them. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I walk on a hundred golf courses a year. You can imagine, I hear a lot of people who are fairly dogmatic about these things. Yeah. And I, I don't interject unless, you know, somebody asks me, but in your case, nitrogen and iron, a little bit of potassium once in a while, if you see a phosphorus deficiency at it. I'm sure Doug told you, and Micah might have told you, they've probably never seen a grass die from a nutrient deficiency other mm -hmm. than nitrogen. Right. That's they both said that. And uh, you know, I I you have just basically described what we do here, Frank. So that might be a good place to stop. But um, you know, I, I gotta say it's always such a pleasure to chat with you. Um yeah. And uh, it's, I'm really it's glad it's... you found this thing. It's, it's, you know, when Micah came and we chatted about this, it immediately perked his interest. It was a rejuvenating thing because I had studied mm -hmm. it 15, 17 years before and then published on it a little bit. And so I think we published that USGA article well after he left here and, yep. and we just stayed in contact. And um, it's really nice to see interest in it rejuvenated. Mm -hmm. uh, we got to go. Uh, we went in 2005, we traveled together to the International Conference in Wales, and we went to Rothamsted. Mm -hmm. And I have a picture with him and uh, Peter Paulson, who's the was the longtime scientist there. And of course, now you have access to all that data. That data is publicly available to peruse and even play around with. Um, they've got soil samples back to the 1800s. I don't think people realize the historical significance of this and you know it was started by a guy who sold fertilizer I know. it was really them you he dawes i think his name was dawes or laws or something like that it was started at this estate uh to help farmers learn how to use synthetically developed fertilizers which were brand new back in the civil war time and it was to make their pastures more productive and it just happened to be one of those things I think there were some iterations that happened. There were some pieces that were added on later. So there's only a portion of it that's remained as the original experiment, mm -hmm. but there's been a couple of things uh, that have been added on. It's been separated by pH and the variety of uh, macro and micronutrients over time. So it's, you know, listen, the opportunity to talk about something that's been really a cornerstone of my philosophical approach to managing turf, I'm not going to miss that chance. So. I'm glad you, I hope that you've been able to, you know, rejuvenate some interest in it. I know Micah talks about it a lot. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, maybe there's a, a, a welcome ear for it now in an industry that is scrutinizing itself a little bit more for nutrient use or is scrutinizing itself for its inputs, because I think this is a good starting point. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, thanks so much for talking about it with me, Frank. And uh, I hope that we can, uh, I'll come up with another subject and we can do this again soon.
Happy to do it, Chris. Great chatting with you. Thank you. Take care of yourself. Bye. See ya.